Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keen on Bloomberg Surveillance, and it has been... Uh, to say the least, an interesting week. It may be, I guess, the week described uh, as when central banks agreed that lower for longer cannot be rooted out from the lexicon. Charles Calamaris is a an economics professor at Columbia Business School. He is uh, a movie star. You're in a new movie next week, right? Yes. Uh, I On Monday... At the Helen Mills Theater, 6.30 p.m., if you want to avoid the presidential debate, you can see a movie called The Money Changers. A lot of my colleagues and I are going to be appearing in it. It's a movie Chris Mortensen made. And it's about the history of the hypocrisy of hating bankers. That would be my summary. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, you probably, when you said you could avoid the presidential debate by seeing it, you probably just sold it, sold the theater out. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Let's, let's bring banks and central banks together. Uh, obviously, the Bank of Japan worried about the impact of negative interest rates. Uh, one thing that has been pretty obvious throughout the whole recovery as central banks pour money into the economy is that we're not seeing demand for the liquidity that they're providing except in financial asset markets. So people aren't going out to take out loans to expand uh, businesses. Uh, have, have, is Are we at the end here? Is this the end game for what central banks are able to do? It, what's interesting is if you look at the academic research on this, the answer is different. It's that we're worse than at the end. We're actually contracting the supply of liquidity right now with central bank policies like negative interest rates. And the reason is two things. First, banks, of course, aren't using the increase in the central bank's balance sheet in any way. So it's the central bank's not translating its liquidity, its growth, into anything the banks are doing. And in fact, the negative interest rates or low interest rates are contracting lending. So the banks are providing less liquidity to the economy. And then finally... There's another effect, which is as central banks absorb more assets onto their balance sheet, they remove collateral that the financial system uses for repo transactions, which are the lifeblood of liquidity. And so actually, central banks, run by macroeconomists who apparently don't understand much about the financial system, pretend that they're increasing liquidity. They're not. They're actually decreasing liquidity. Is that why... Uh, then we are not seeing success at their goals of reflation, or is is it because they don't have the ability to reflate anymore? Well, you're, you know, you're right that it's it's a mix. So part of the reason they don't have the ability is that banks are deciding. Uh, based on regulatory criteria that they don't really want to do as much deposit taking and lending as they used to do. So there's independent of monetary policy, there are other drags on loan supply. So I agree with you. It's not all about the central bank's monetary policy. But insofar as monetary policy is having an effect, and it is having one, it is having a negative effect. 
Sorry I'm late this morning. Mike, I was up in the food court getting my I Believe Mets t-shirt. Wow. It was a great <laughs> ending to the game last night, for those of you who missed it. Walk-off yeah. home run in the 11th for the yeah, New I Dogs. Believe, the New York Mets. You, you, well, just, we'll just note that the uh, the Boston Red Sox are comfortably in control comfortably. of their division, and we'll get back to that. With us, Calamaris of Columbia. Charlie, I, you know, I hate to say this, but you predicted this. When we look at Don't it, hate it. You know, the, own why it. Why do you, you say it. you hate to but say the, that? But the, the system that you and Mike were just talking about, I've got Willem Bowder at Citigroup and Ken Rogoff with his wonderful new book, The Curse of Cash, saying there can be a constructive negative race. Marvin Goodfriend at Carnegie Mellon saying this as well. But we're not getting there. May I suggest, Professor, we're doing a sort of kind of like negative race? And the issue here is simply courage. Well, you're saying that the central banks need to double down on uh, on the wrong idea, or diffuse the, the diffuse the theory of negative rates more through the system to clear markets. Well, look, they they certainly, if they want to push negative uh, negative rates as a policy, they could probably do it better and and try to create more of a sense of what they what markets they think they might be affecting try to manage expectations i can see that but i don't really you know there's only so far you can go with a bad idea tom this is a bad idea it is not stimulative it's the opposite and you know my own view is it's an act of desperation by central banks who want to appear to be doing something for political reasons more than any other explanation so What's what should they be doing? Just reverse it? Should we be backing out, selling off assets, and raising rates? Yes. So they they should be raising rates. That will help the banking system to start to increase the supply of lending in the economy, and they should be very concerned, as Eric Rosengrens pointed out, and Jeremy Stein, and other Fed uh, bureaucrats who who understand this. They should be very concerned about asset bubbles. Whether you're talking about insurance annuities or agricultural real estate or other commercial real estate in the U.S. or houses, this is a big problem. And, Charlie, you had one of the insights of the week, Mike. I don't know if you heard it right at the end of our broadcast on television. Professor Calamaris was showing the immediacy of President Rosengren's knowledge of the financial system and his concern over financial instability. Professor, extend that conversation. Tell me about just the simple idea of Rosengren's worry about the stability of banks, and particularly European banks. Well, you you know, I think what he's most famous for, his work, is all about how the level of capital of banks, their net worth, their stock price, whatever you want to call it, affects their lending. In fact, his most famous article published in the American Economic Review was showing that uh, in the 1990s. And I think that that is exactly the mechanism that you should be focusing on right now. I asked my students at Columbia Business School a trick question. Why is Citibank's market value of equity to book value of equity less than one? And why has it been less than one for so long? It's not because of hidden um, assets, losses that haven't been marked down. It's mainly because of negative interest rates or low interest rates that have made the bank's core retail operations, its, its deposit-taking franchise, unprofitable. Deutsche Bank's assets in dollars approach $2 trillion. 
Their book value of equity is $68 billion. Those are two big, big numbers, but the answer is that gives pause to everybody in banking. With us, Charles Calamaris and economics at Columbia, but linking it into the financial system. Charlie, maybe more than anyone we speak to, you actually go into central banks and talk to them. There's a belief in the United States that when banks get gnarly, we have institutions that go into the banks. The adults walk through the door and say, okay, this is the way it's going to be. Does that happen in the rest of the world? Does it happen in Greece? Does it happen in Portugal? Does it happen in uh, Indonesia? Does it happen in Germany? I think that uh, what you're seeing over the past few years is that when banks get into trouble, the people who are charged with regulating the banks in Europe simply uh, make more excuses about why no one should worry. So we're seeing, of course, every country you mentioned, uh, I would say France, especially, Greece, of course. Um, what, what do you mean France, especially? They don't well, have the adults in the room of regulation? Definitely not. I'm sorry to say. No, the um, I had a conversation with, with a senior bank regulator in France a few years ago where I said, you know, your banks can't borrow in the markets short term because everyone thinks they're insolvent. And he says, but the markets are wrong. But I said, the markets have thought that for a few years now. Can the markets be wrong for years? And it's all about pumping money into them and basically ignoring the market signals. So if you if you look at what the markets are saying about European banks, it's not a very okay. pretty picture. Mike, I don't mean to interrupt here, but I think this is critical. Does John Cryan have the same scrutiny that Mr. Moynihan had? Coming off the Ed Lewis years at Bank of America? You mean within the United States? Within the bank. Does he have the adults coming in the door mm -hmm. to sit him down and say, this is the way it is? Uh, you know, I think actually Germany is uh, and the Netherlands are exceptional within continental Europe in terms of uh, – and Switzerland for high-quality bank okay. regulation. Okay, good. Good to hear. But that doesn't mean that the bank is adequately capitalized, especially in light of all the negative shocks that it's dealing with, monetary policy being one of them. So I, I think uh, you know, the, the problem is that there's no good news. There's no silver lining. Where is the European banking system's good news coming from? Not the macroeconomy, not monetary policy, not regulatory policy. Well, where is it coming from? Nowhere. Well, the Europeans have been working on a unified regulatory system for banks. Uh, are they going to get there soon enough to help? Well, you know, I served for three years on the European Systemic Risk Board and helped write lots of the white papers when I was serving there just a few, few years ago, a couple of years ago, on consolidation of regulation in Europe. And clearly the ECB is taking a, an important leadership role in the last couple of years, and it's still trying to figure that out. Um, however, national sovereignty still rules the day in Europe from a banking system standpoint. You're seeing a balkanization of the European financial system, not an integration of the system, and a balkanization of regulation, despite the fact that the ECB is running stress tests, despite the fact that the ECB appears to be a consolidated regulator. In fact, it lacks some crucial powers. So I, I think that um, really this is a bit oversold. And I think that we still see banks being run by nation states. Well, uh, banks being run by nation states to the extent the nation states' rules let them. I uh, want to sort of finish up by asking you here. If you were running Italy, would you just tell the EU <laughs> to go jump out the window and go uh, prop up the Italian banks? I mean, are they important enough that uh, they trump the need to uh, keep your 
budget deficit in line right. with EU rules. Well, from a short-term perspective, I could certainly see uh, that attraction for the Italian politicians. And I think, you know, you're raising an excellent point, which is who's in charge? Is it uh, the European rules that keep getting broken, but selectively, depending on who's got the political power to break them? Yeah. Or is it the the um, the countries themselves? Uh, and wh where does bank right. regulation come okay. from? Can I, you, you're the, raising can a great I, can point. I answer the question? Please. Mr. Gunlock's in charge. Jeff Gunlock months ago said <laughs> the moment that Deutsche Bank prints under 10 euros per share, all of a sudden there'll be an attitude adjustment. I happen to agree with the Gunlock, mm -hmm. the, the American economist's. Uh, Gunlock. I think Ele the, 11, you're right. 11.40 on Deutsche Bank. The daily low is 11.20 early August. I mean, we're there. A breakdown from here would be some. This has been great. Don't be a stranger. Charles Keller, uh, Maris. It's, it's, it, we need him back, but it's hard to get a guy you know who's making so many movies. Should we ask him about Brad and Angela? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, there's I mean, he's there's a movie rumors guy, about so, you. <laughs> Look, I have nothing to do with, with Angela. Brad and I are very close. Okay, very good. Uh, Professor, thank you so much. Professor Calamaris of Columbia Business School. We have a, such a distinguished guest. We're going to well, move you did along. STEM at University of Michigan. If you did I mean, STEM, would your income be higher? Now, there's a question for Ed Conner. Uh, hmm. He is, uh, of course, uh, the author of the new book. Well, not of course, because it's a new book, so people don't know that. The Upside of Inequality, How Good Intentions Undermine the Middle Class. Uh, and, um, yeah, obviously, we've known you for years in, in your uh, markets iteration, uh, following commodities everywhere. Yes. And somewhere we're going to slip in a question about oil, but let's talk about the book. Uh, you make the interesting argument that income inequality uh, that we're seeing, that everybody is bemoaning and wringing their hands over, isn't that bad a deal? Yes, I uh, try to do a few things to spell a lot of the myths about income inequality. One of the chief ones is that the success of the 1% is responsible for the slow growth of the middle and working class. I try to explain why uh, one has grown fast, the other has grown slow. Uh, I try to explain how the economy has changed today relative to the past when it was a capital-intensive manufacturing-based economy. Now it's a very uh, knowledge, innovation-driven economy. Uh, in the past, savings constrained growth. Today, I argue that properly trained talent and our uh, capacity and our willingness to take risk, entrepreneurial risk, is is really the limits to growth today and what what drives up uh, wages and employment. Uh, why is it not a bad thing? Not that we have income inequality, because as you point out in the book, uh, it helps people strive. People want to get rich, so they work harder, etc. But the percentage change in income inequality is what people are really concerned about. The fact that the incomes of the 1% have gone up so much faster than the incomes of even even median income people. Uh, uh, yes, I think if you, if you view the economy as a pie to be divided and you believe that the 1% is getting a larger and larger share of the pie at the expense of the middle and working class, then I think you're going to be very concerned about income inequality. If you believe that they can manipulate the government successfully on their own behalf and that they really haven't provided value to customers in order to earn their success, then 
you, you would worry about that. I think when you step back and look at the evidence, it doesn't really support the argument, which is not to say there isn't plenty of crony capitalism. There surely is. But if you look at the Forbes 400, 70 <clears> percent <throat> are uh, uh, founded businesses. If you look at the Fortune 500, you see acceleration in the turnover of companies in the Fortune 500. If you look at the tech sector, which uh, is at the cutting edge, you see enormous uh, turmoil in the tech sector. And your book is is incredibly important, and, and to be honest, it reads like my book, Flying in One Engine, and it's incredibly dense with facts and charts. That is great. And uh, statements. No, I'm serious. No, I was just going to say you managed and to get a, uh, a, a shameless plug in, plug in, in I got for a shameless two books for my in own the book. same sentence. But but Ed, what's so resoundingly important about your book? Arthur Brooks, Glenn Albert of Columbia, Julian Robertson, who we'll be speaking to next week, a guy named Romney from Massachusetts. I get all that. Larry Summers gives your book an exceptionally constructive blurb. How does Ed Conard um, business-like optimism fold into Professor Summers' secular stagnation? How do you dovetail your world into Summer's observation on a stagnant America? Yes, I, I think that we're, he and I and others are all trying to deal with a similar problem, uh, trying to explain slow growth, obviously, at the, at the core of it. His argument is that we've run out of investment opportunities. And it's probably the case that it's become harder to grow. Uh, you invent a car, you grow quickly. You invent the Internet, you grow quickly. You sort of fish out that pool and you're waiting for the next big innovation. So I think there's some uh, logic to his secular stagnation argument, which is we've run out of investment opportunity. I think there's the Ben Bernanke version of that argument, which is we just have a surplus of risk-averse savings. We don't have a lot of use for that. We put it into subprime mortgages, subprime consumption. Uh, Germany put it into Greek consumption. China put it into building at the apartment buildings. Nobody in this knowledge-based economy really has much much need for these risk-averse savings. I make a third argument, which is that we're banging up our willingness and capacity to take risks. Think of that as equity that's willing to underwrite risk, but it's a little more complicated than that. I did want to call the book The Equity Constraint, by the way. And that when you bang up against that, you're going to see slower productivity mm -hmm. growth. You're going to have less use for risk-averse savings because savings sit on the sideline unless somebody else bears the risk yeah. of putting them to work, right. and they're using that risk-taking capacity yeah. for other things. We talk a little bit about... Um, how uh, it's not a bad thing to have income inequality. People strive. Uh, maybe there's the the the, uh, the, the whole um, percentage gain thing maybe a little out of line. But in general, you're not as concerned about it. But how does it hurt the middle class? We haven't addressed the subtitle of the book yet. I, I argue that good intentions undermine the middle class. I, I, I think two things happen. Take, take, for example, when Ford moves its production to Mexico or Whirlpool. Uh, you know, we tell those workers, don't worry, the entrepreneurs are coming. They're going to put you back to work. They're going to compete with each other, and they're going to drive your wages back up. Um, but there's a shortage of entrepreneurial talent in the country. That's what's limiting growth. And the worker looks and sees that that guy's moved to California. He's outsourced his blue-collar jobs to China. Meanwhile, the engineers, the talented engineers who are back in his uh, home uh, uh, community are designing products and uh, uh, processes, factories for Mexican workers. And he says, where's the talented worker? Where's the entrepreneur who's going to put me back to work? And I think that's a big problem that we have been tone deaf to, and we haven't really implemented the policies that uh, will put those workers back to work, and I do uh, recommend some in the book. Where, where are the entrepreneurs then? I mean, where did they go that 
I think they moved to California. They're working on uh, information-intensive uh, opportunities, and to the extent it creates blue-collar work, it's in uh, being outsourced to China, like the case of Apple, okay. for example. Bernard Balin, the great Harvard historian, the depeopling of North America, which was about the Indians, and when a, and then when the troops came over uh, f from uh, Europe, there is a depeopling of a lot of America, and it's resonated with Gov with Senator Sanders and with Mr. Trump. What's your policy to put that group of the middle class back to work? Is it a canard industrial policy, not a Japan policy, but I'm sorry, an American in industrial policy? Is that what is needed? Well, I, I don't think we're getting any manufacturing jobs back when you can hire workers in the rest of the world for $3 an hour in China, $8 an hour in Mexico. And you can so where are the jobs for people voting for Mr. Trump or voting for Senator Sanders. So keep in mind this. You know, a lot of people say we're not generating any jobs for people in the middle and low and working class. We are. We have 40 million foreign-born adults, <clears throat> 20 million native-born adult children of those of those people. That's 60 million but, jobs. We have created an enormous number but Ed, of jobs. You, but you are an eloquent spokesman for a certain part of successful America who desperately want to help these people. Me, yes. What's the policy? I, of Governor Romney or another moderate Democrat to get these people to work. I think there's two things that we could do. One of them is that we should be uh, not allowing unbalanced trade. So as I, I say, you can't make for $20 what you can buy for $2 and be successful in the long run, but you don't have to have perennial trade deficits equal to, they were as high as 5.5% of GDP prior to the financial crisis. You know, they're running in the 3 percentage range today. I make a proposal that we should issue a dollar of uh, import licenses for every dollar of exports. Some, you know, for the, the, the ardent free traders don't want any restrictions on trade whatsoever. However, I believe we need free trade. We don't want tariffs. We don't want quotas. We have to have trade with low-wage economies, limit but we don't let it be unbalanced. If you limit trade, prices are going to go up. If you limit trade, prices are going to go up. They might go up a little bit, but I would say this. We don't want trade when the only oh. reason for it is to import okay. uh, savings into our economy that we have no use Let's for. Let's slow interest rates. Go ahead, Mike. Please. Well, I was going to say, is there, have you heard a hue and cry from the blue-collar workers <clears throat> who are unemployed? who are worried about their jobs or unemployed or supporting Donald Trump saying, raise the prices at Walmart to help me. No, but I, mean, I think Americans you, don't get that connection. I, there, there's possibility there could be a small uh, price increase, but I think when you say a small price increase versus saving sitting idle as opposed to reemploying the workers where the, the labor right. was outsourced I, as a result of the deficit, I think they prefer the job. I want to slow down and get back to the definitions in microeconomics out of what you're proposing. You're proposing that for every Export that goes out, we do what with imports? Explain we, that again. We issue a dollar of import licenses. So What's we, that? That's Greek. Uh, we allow a dollar of imports into the country, but we would do it with a license. So if you if an export would come with a license for a dollar of imports, those licenses would be freely tradable. This is Warren Buffett's proposal, by the way. The dollar would be freely trade. The, the license would be freely tradable. They'd probably trade close to zero because trade would be balanced. So the two would be coming in to the extent somebody wants to unbalance trade. It would drive the price of that up a little bit, but I think the, the would price would be. Would we diminish consumer imports through this policy of Ed Kennard and Warren Buffett? Only to the extent. Only, so it won't affect true free trade. 
And it says, anybody wants to trade with us, we have lots of competitive products to buy. Come buy our products, et cetera. The only reason why trade is unbalanced, and it's unbalanced with three countries previously for China, Germany, Japan, Mexico. The heart of your thrust is if they want to sell us T-shirts, they got to buy the from us. Yes, and they do. But what ends up happening is these countries have excess savings. They don't have any use for the savings. We don't have use for our excess savings. And they say, I, as a matter of strategy, can run a perennial trade deficit with the United States. I, the Americans buy goods. We have their dollars. Instead of buying goods that employ Americans, we put, uh, buy government debt. It that pushes people that would have bought government debt into the banking system. Their deposits okay, sit in the I, banks I, unused. I want to go Nobody micro buys them. China sells us T-shirts. Those are our imports. We import T-shirts. Yeah. Are we demanding that they buy our nuclear technology instead of France's? Well, keep in mind they buy a lot of it, right? It's about 13% exports and 16% imports. So, you know, we would have 13% We're closer than we think. Yeah, the vast majority of trade is already balanced. So you have a small piece with a number of countries like Germany where they have a lot of savings. They don't have any use for those savings. And as a matter of strategy, they use those savings to – they loan those savings to the United States. And those savings sit unused because we don't have any use for them at zero interest rates. And so they end up exporting employment. Now we get a little bit of consumer surplus from the lower-cost goods that we buy from them as a result of that. But we lose employment. I would say the cost of losing that employment is far greater than the incremental yeah. value of a little additional trade. But don't forget, 13% of the economy's you know, trading balanced. We're getting all the benefits of that. So I don't want to conflate arguments for trade with arguments for trade deficits. They're different. Okay. Well, well explained. Yeah. That was a lot of fancy uh, microeconomics with canard ambiguity. Well, if, we if, had that there. If you want an explanation, there's a great place to go to get it, and that is the book. The upside yeah. of inequality. The upside of inequality, how good intentions undermine the middle class. Again, I can't, when you get Glenn Hubbard and Larry Summers on the same page, that is Ed Canard cool. Can't say enough about the book. Charts, numbers, things to argue about. We like that on a Friday on Bloomberg Surveillance. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Can we have some historical perspective, Michael? Can we go back to 1946? Yeah. 1949? Sure. I, I mean, extraordinary. Luis Yamada is looking at this great bull market, and as we speak, people without the humility of Ms. Yamada are writing articles saying the world's coming to an end, that the market can't go up. Let me get your attention, folks. She's framing 19,000 potential. One of our most popular guests, Louise Yamada. Louise, good morning. Good morning, Tom. You have always had a humility about getting on the trend and just observing what's happening. Help the bears right now, the doom and gloom crew. What's happening in this great bull market? 
Well, we turned more positive in early July because the uh, indicators were really quite constructive and suggested that the markets could move to new highs. And we certainly have seen that with the Dow, S&P, the 400, the 600, um, the 500, and NASDAQ, which is now really taking the lead. Um, we're waiting and we're looking carefully for the monthly momentum buy signals. Some of the Dow has crossed over, but we'd like to see a, a positive trend become a little bit more wide. Uh, but we're not looking for a major down at the moment. We know we're in a seasonally right. bad area. You, you, um, you know, and again, this goes back uh, a few years, folks. Louise started technical analysis when she was four years old. Um, Barron's a few years ago, crystal ball gazing. What is the difference now in the crystal ball gazing from that classic article <clears throat> 20 years ago and the crystal ball gazing of a super mathy computer media now, Louise? a fascinating uh, question, Tom. There's too much. Oh, come on, Louise. I can answer it. There's too much information now. People need a number two pencil. They need to read Chartcraft and Louise Yamada. That would help simplify things. And just move up and let the market go. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if what we're seeing here is the inflationary impact uh, manifesting in the equity market. Um, because obviously with negative to very low interest rates, there's no place else to go. But we're not going to be without interim corrections, let's put it that way. Um, and certainly with the interest rates you were talking about, 1946 to 49, we went back and looked at the first interest rate rise in that period, and that was the first time in 1946 that they could raise rates after the crash in 1929 to 32. Uh, and after that, you had a very wide trading range. It was a bear market. 20% down, 24%, and went sideways until 1949. So whether or not we see something similar as we move into a trading range from these points, we'd like to get the confirmation of the right. monthly momentum. That That's for sure. Uh, and there are some negative divergences creeping in as they can uh, when a trend emerges. Mm -hmm. But there everything's in positive territory and those negative divergences sometimes take three to four months to manifest in any more serious right. market decline. So Michael? whether it happens September, October, maybe after the election, we'll see. There are a lot of this was the uncertainties. Week, this was the week of a lot of central bank news and everybody was looking to see what happens to currencies post central banks, particularly dollar yen. What are you seeing in the charts? Uh, for the for the yen itself, um, well, the yen itself has been in a. Uh, I'm just going to pull it up. Has been in a in a downtrend. In other words, it's been strengthening uh, since the beginning of the year, and actually looks poised to break a hundred here. And if it does, then that strengthening may have a very negative mm -hmm. effect. On the, on the Japanese economy. Where could it go uh, if it breaks 100? I mean, is that a significant – it's a psychological resistance point, I know, but, but – um. Well, 100 provided quite a bit of support in 2014 from which the yen weakened, uh, and that was a positive. If it breaks 100 now and starts down, your next support right. comes in around 95. Louise, very quickly here, 
there continue to be consistent mutual fund outflows. Billionaire investors, unlike Luis Yamada, have been bragging about being out of the market in cash. Is that the ultimate contrarian indicator? Is seven and eight figure guys aren't in the market? I find it hard to believe that they're not in the market. Um, whether or not they're telling the truth or not, I have no idea. But um, certainly there have been outflows. A lot of the mutual fund outflows have been coming into ETFs, interestingly enough. Um, sometimes it matches the outflow, sometimes it doesn't. But there is a, there is a mm-hmm. definite lack of volume no. that's taking place here. Luis Yamada uh, with us. In a couple years, folks, there's going to be a charge card where you will get a million miles if you spend $425,000 in one week. (laughs) That's going to happen, and it's Brian Kelly's fault. The points guy catches up with us now on the madness of it all. Brian, Mike wants to get to the Starwood uh, Marriott Ballet. We'll do that in a moment. Would you please explain the nuclear war that is Chase Sapphire Reserve? How does the industry adapt to the frenzy over the Chase 100,000 bonus points card? Yeah, you, you know, Chase didn't just come out swinging. They came out punching hard with this card. And it really is rattling the whole credit card sphere, especially for those lucrative, uh, you know, premium customers that are, that are charging tons and tons of money. And Chase has them in the palm of their hand. And it, it's kind of brilliant. Instead of spending millions and millions in dumb TV ads with, you know, actresses that aren't going to really move the needle. They've invested in the value product, and it's really resonated. And, uh, yeah, the other, other card companies, I know for yeah. a fact, are, are scrambling. And so, but I think that, that bodes well for consumers because the offers are right. going to get better. And, and, Mr. Diamond, if you're listening, it's okay. You don't have to do TV, as Brian just a bad mouth. But it's okay if bow ties and Mike McKee do chase ads on radio. Michael? I, I, I guess I need to remember my audience. <laughs> All right. Today is the big day. Uh, Starwood and uh, Marriott become one. Uh, they're all excited, and they've put out a, a press release, sent me a notification that as a Starwood preferred guest member, I can link my account at members.marriott.com. I seem to remember when this was announced, a guy named Brian Kelly saying, you don't want to do that. Um, that uh, This wasn't going to be necessarily great for Starwood folks. Well, so I think the biggest concern for Starwood elites was whether Marriott was going to, you know, basically overtake the program. And for example, if it was a one-to-one takeover, it would have been catastrophic, right? But what they're actually saying is for every Starwood point, you get three Marriott, which can make sense in, in many circumstances. And also they're doing instant status matches. So they're not saying Marriott's now the program bye-bye Starwood. That was kind of the doomsday scenario. What they're saying is they actually just appointed a new head of Starwood, which kind of signals that the Starwood program is not going to go away anytime soon. And they even added a new transfer partner to Starwood two days ago, which also signals they wouldn't be adding new partners if they wanted to fold the program tomorrow. So I think today is the best news possible for Starwood members, because frankly, it's business as usual. And now we can also earn and redeem at thousands and thousands more property. So it's a net positive, in my opinion. You don't have a lot of things like that where they work out in your favor, right? You really don't. And, you know, with the airline mergers, you know, they they always heralded the best of both programs. And guess what? You know, we've seen huge increases in the amount of miles needed. So, you know, this we've never seen a, a hotel merger of this magnitude 
Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm watching with frothing mouth to see what exactly they're going to do. And, you know, nothing is to say over time they're not going to kind of make those devaluations. There's still tons of question marks like, you know, Starwood Platinums are right now accustomed to suite upgrades. Will that continue in a larger program down the line? There, there's still lots of question marks. But once again, today's news is pretty darn good. You don't have to transfer into Marriott. You don't have to play with a different program if you don't want to, but you have the option. Now, uh, to merge Tom's question and my question, uh, one of the things we were always told is that uh, one of the better credit cards out there was Starwood. Um, is that going to remain the case, uh, or you want to just get, get the Sapphire and forget everything else? Well, you know, the Sapphire Reserve is a great product across the board for sure. But, you know, Sapphire points don't transfer to American miles and especially not at a good ratio. Starwood points do. Starwood points are the number one most valuable points currency out there, period, full stop. Chase points are not far behind, but Starwood points are incredible. Um, you know, it's much harder to earn them. They don't give 3x on travel. But, um, you know, I, I, I say just like stocks and bonds, you want to diversify. So I still spend heavily on my Starwood cards to build up those point balances, right. whether the Amex will still have it. You know, we just saw recently with American Airlines, they have both City and Barclay card issuing two separate lines of cards for them. I could see that happening as well. I mean, it's big business. I don't think Marriott's going to want to just dump the, the Starwood Amex loyalty. That's billions of dollars in value uh, to go with Chase. So uh, I think once again, this bodes well for consumers because we're going to see Chase, you know, ramp up efforts on the on their Marriott product side. And, and Amex just came out with a new two free night offer this week. So they're obviously throwing shots across the bow. So it's an interesting time. How will the banks respond to Chase? There's a meeting happening now at Citigroup, and they've got on the wall a dartboard, Brian, with your face on it. <laughs> and they they gotta they gotta respond to Chase. It, does they the do. war just engage? What happens? Yes, you know I've heard lots of rumblings from many issuers. Uh, value prop, lots of bonuses are coming out. Uh, lots of increased value props. I think what's happened and what Chase, this new Chase product allows is the bean counters at, at all these other banks. I think we've seen death by a thousand cuts, right? They try to save on costs by cutting away at the perks on cards. And a lot of the product people at these credit card companies have been pulling their hair out saying, look, we're losing the battle. We're losing the battle. Yeah. And now this, this, yeah. this Sapphire Reserve is the prime okay. example of consumers want value. 20 seconds. Make us sick. What's the next Brian Kelly worldwide travel for $29? What's well, your next actually, trip? The, I'll give you the scoop. I, I use my 100,000 points for my Sapphire Reserve. I'm flying Korean Airlines first class home. I'm going to Niawatu, which is the, the number one hotel in the world on an island off of Bali. I'm flying home one way, 90,000 miles uh, first class, and it was 7000 bucks to buy it. So I got $7,000 for $80 in taxes and fees and from a single credit card sign-up. Brian Kelly. We hate you. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, the points guy. I would imagine he hears that all the time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.